My guest today is Logan Yuri, the Director of Relationship Science at Hinge, dating coach, behavioral scientist, and author. A lot of people do feel confused by dating right now, but the issue is that when people think about the future, they feel like their future self is different from their present self. They don't make the connection that it's them in the future. And I did a lot of research at the time on breakups, so really honing my perspective on what happens in a breakup, recovering from a breakup, all of that, which became part of my book learning how to do a great profile. And for me, it really comes down to telling your story. What are they struggling with? What's really going on for them? That's a good conversation. A good conversation is really helping somebody open up and maybe you open up in the, in the, in the, in the conversation as well. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My guest today is Logan Yuri, the Director of Relationship Science at Hinge, dating coach, behavioral scientist, and author. In her current role at Hinge, she leads a research team dedicated to helping people find love. Logan was born and raised in South Florida near Miami, and as a child, she aspired to be President of the United States of America, and was even voted most likely to do so at high school. But she answered the calling to behavioral science and matchmaking after studying psychology at Harvard University. She regularly receives messages from people who tell her that her advice via talks, courses, and her book, How Not to Die Alone, is the reason they are married and or have kids and she admits it's an unbelievable feeling to know that you've changed the course of someone's life through your work but what about Logan's own life I asked my guests to share their life lessons the risks they've taken challenges they've faced obstacles they've had to overcome and what they've learned as a result I can't wait to hear Logan's life lessons on this episode of the Emma Gunn show welcome to the podcast thank you for having me happy to be here um, first of all, we have to ask, aspire to be president of the United States. And it wasn't just a dream in your own head. The people that you spent your childhood with thought that you would probably make it too. Yes. I mean, now it seems ridiculous. I think being president doesn't seem fun at all and seems really tiring. And in these political times, <clears throat> just sort of a no-win situation. But I think as a kid, you know, growing up and uh, there was Bill Clinton and he was this young, exciting president and had a young family in the White House. I think all of that was really interesting. And I had a president's poster on my wall. It was just sort of part of the culture at that time. And I think things were generally less politicized and less divided. Now it does seem like so far from anything I'd be interested in. Yeah. It, yeah. It seems very inaccessible now, whereas before... You're right, that kind of era and before it seemed a little bit more, I don't know, I don't know, that yeah, accessible is probably the right word I can think of. Like you related to the people in power. I don't really relate to anyone in power at the moment. Yeah, and I think there were, I mean, obviously there were people that disagreed with the president at the time, but I think especially now it's like you can't really do anything right if you're in politics, so... Yeah, would not would not want that job right now. <laughs> no. Um, also, you have to tell me about your connection to London. So we're doing this call. You are currently, where are you at the moment? I'm in the Bay Area, California. So right near San Francisco in Oakland. Okay, fabulous. I'm in London, outskirts. But you have a connection to London. Yeah, my dad is British and he grew up there and his sister's still there. And so I have visited many times and even have a British passport. Whereabouts? Is it specifically in London? Yeah, or? yeah. He grew up in London 
And yeah, it's funny because I got my passport, I think in 2016, and it was a few months before Brexit. And I was like, wow, this just became way less valuable. The amount of people who wish that they still had their red uh, passports, though, they've had to change. (laughs) But anyway, so it's very exciting to have you on the show. And I deliberately put what might have been a sticking point in that introduction, because you are the, you have an incredible role at Hinge. You are the director of relationship science. You are a behavioral scientist. But I use the word matchmaker because in all of the things that I have read and researched about you, that is not a word that I have seen used to describe you. And I wondered if that's because actually what you're doing is perhaps more elevated or actually it's a bit more complex than this idea of being able to match, I don't know, type A with type B. Yeah. So I wouldn't call myself a matchmaker and not because one is more elevated than the other. I just think they're actually distinct things. And I work with a lot of matchmakers. I refer a lot of my dating coaching clients to matchmakers, but I see it as something quite different. So um, a matchmaker, I think, is similar to a recruiter, if you've ever worked with any sort of corporate recruiter, where they really have to see what are the company's needs? What is the company looking for? Does this person have that? What would this combination of skills and personality and desires, how would that play out in this environment? And so a matchmaker really has to think about two disparate people coming together and what will emerge Mm-hmm. What I do is much more psychological and it's with one person. And so it's saying, you know, somebody comes to me as a dating coaching client and they might say, I'm 28. I've never been in a long-term relationship. I don't really know what I'm looking for and I don't know where to start. And so I am working with them week by week to understand who they are, what they want, what's been holding them back. How do I help them stay accountable and and reach their goal. So it's much more one-on-one, where are you now? Where do you want to go? How do I help you get there? And then matchmaking is really about taking two people, putting them in the same room and see what happens. And that's not something that I do. Okay. So I think this is a very interesting topic, given that it seems definitely in my lifetime, and I really have felt it over the last 10, 20 years, this, we're far less community-based. We are all about, it seems to be individualism, and when I watch things like Love Island, I don't know if you are a partaker, but when you put a group of people together, romance will happen, sparks will fly, intimate relationships will form. But when we're all living alone, or more of us are living alone than before, it completely would make sense that you are very busy. But what's the question? <laughs> Well, the question is, meaning that because we don't have that social interaction, we need the lubrication, perhaps more of people like you to help us. Because if we're not fundamentally engaging in these communities of people, then these oh, love oh, sorry, aren't sorry. going I understand. to obviously form. I get it. You were saying I'm busy with my job. Sorry, I got confused. I thought you were saying like, everyone's so busy. So how do we meet? Okay, <laughs> got it. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons why my business and being a dating coach and the work that I do at Hinge has been really critical. And I think that's because a lot of people do feel confused by dating right now. So there's a lot of options out there and they're trying to understand how do they navigate it. Dating apps are still relatively new. I mean, really, they only came out around a decade ago. And so people are still navigating them, especially some older people who have never used them before and maybe are divorced or widowed and have to navigate them for the first time. So there's absolutely a feeling of this is a whole new world and how do I get through it? And I think a lot of people just need support. If you also look at the rise of therapy talk and how much conversation there is around loneliness and mental health, clearly people are struggling and they really want a one-on-one person who they can connect with and say, hey, this is hard. This is what's going on. Can you help me? If somebody comes to you and says, I'm finding this really hard, is it about making them see that it's easy, making it easier for them? Are we switching from hard to easy when it comes to a dating approach? No, I wouldn't tell somebody, oh, this is easy. And why is it hard for you? I feel like that would just make them feel worse. Like, well, why, why did it feel hard for me? Instead, what I like to do is demystify it and just say, hey, 
you have a goal, your goal is to find someone and be in a long-term relationship. These are the steps that you have to take along the way. And I'm going to help you at each part of it. So we might start with what is your dating background? Have you tended to date this type of person? Why hasn't it worked out? What are the parts of those relationships that you want to move forward? And so really diving into their background and then demystifying the profile at Hinge. We've done so much research on what makes a great profile and you know, it's maybe it's not as intuitive, but it definitely doesn't require guesswork. We have the research at Hinge. We know what makes a great profile and that's something that people can learn. And so really helping them understand this is what a great profile is. This is how people who are successful in Hinge find love and then helping them do that. And then a big part, just like working out, just like eating healthy, just like getting a new job is consistency. You have to sign on. You have to look at people in the app. You have to respond to them and message them proactively and go on dates. And you have to go on a certain number of dates before it works out. So it's not that I say, hey, this is easy. You're making it hard. I say there's a lot of reasons why this might feel challenging. But if we just break it down into bite-sized pieces, it will feel like something that you can achieve. It's very interesting because recently, and none of the friends that I've spoken to knew that I was going to be having this conversation with you. Uh, Dating apps has come up a few times and every single person when I've said, oh, what, what apps are you guys using? Every single one says, well, you know, I've tried every, I've tried everything. I've tried them all, but really Hinge is the one that's working for me. What do you think that boils down to? What do you think you're getting right over the other apps? Yeah, I'm happy to hear that. And I'm also not surprised. <laughs> you know, I've been, I've been in this role for three and a half years and I've also done a lot of work in the UK and I feel like it, it is such a strong app and I just really believe in it before I worked at Hinge. I interviewed Justin McLeod, the CEO, for my book. And we were talking about how apps work. And I was like, well, you know, your tagline is designed to be deleted, but that doesn't make sense because then every time somebody deletes the app, you have to find a new customer and that wouldn't be good business. And he was like, that's absolutely not true. And he said, the best thing for Hinge is word of mouth. When somebody is at a wedding and they met on Hinge, when somebody's in a great new relationship and they met on Hinge, that is so much stronger. And that is really how we become such a great app. And so it's much more about design to be deleted, get you on great dates, get you into a great relationship. And then that will spread the word versus, mm -hmm. oh, we secretly don't want you to find someone because then we'd have to find a new customer. And so since I've been there, I found that that's very true, that all the meetings I'm in, everything that we focus on is really how do we help people be better daters? How do we get people on more great first dates? And then how do we help them stay in those relationships? And you mentioned the book there. And I have to say the title is genius. And I was watching <laughs> one of your talks and you sort of jokingly say that it's not about, uh, about dating and about communication. You say it's not about manipulating people, but it is about getting them perhaps to do what you want in a, in a non-manipulative way. And I feel like the title, How Not to Die Alone, is I can imagine that many, many people have seen that and just gone by immediately because that says it all. It kind of gets it gets you a little bit scared, makes you think maybe this is something you should deal with with urgency. So that's a genius title. How did you come up with that? Thank you. Yeah, I'm really proud of the title and it's absolutely my sense of humor. When I first had the idea, I think it freaked out the publisher a little bit because <laughs> they tend to like titles that are a little bit more hopeful or optimistic. Like what is the what is the dream that you're selling with the book? And I'm like, that's not really my style. My style is much more tough love. And I do want somebody to see it and be like, damn, am I going to die alone? I guess I should read this book so that I don't. And it's interesting, you know, I get pushback from people who say, I'm a therapist and I love your book, but I struggle to recommend it to people because of the title. Mm -hmm. But I think that's just an opportunity to, to talk about reality and goals and to be a little tongue in cheek about it. And so I think in some ways it's served me a lot. There are other people who only want to read it on Kindle because they're embarrassed by reading that title in public, but it's very much me and I'm proud of it. Okay, let's switch gears and let's begin to go through the questionnaire that the listeners will be familiar with. But before I ask you about the specific risk that you've taken, I'm curious to understand, uh, if you wouldn't mind describing, how would you describe your relationship with risk? Yeah, um, I would say that I'm good at taking big risks, but sometimes small at, uh, sorry, let me say that again. I think I'm good at taking big risks, but occasionally not that good at taking small risks. 
So I have taken big risks, which I'm sure we'll talk about and leaving a comfortable job in tech and moving into a commune and doing some really big life things that a lot of people probably wouldn't do. But then on a day-to-day basis, I do have a lot of perfectionist tendencies that make it hard for me to buy a bench because what if it's not the perfect bench? (laughs) Analysis paralysis, waiting for the the better thing to come along. Yeah, especially in the shopping realm. Okay. So um, let's talk about the biggest risk that you already referenced. So are you talking about the job at Airbnb when you left in 2017? Yeah. So I graduated from college and I worked at Google for six years and it was an amazing job. And I mean, I think Google's still a great place to work, but especially, I think this might've been the height of it where you had incredible perks. Everybody was so happy to be there. It was, my parents were thrilled to wear Google t-shirts. It was definitely a heyday of tech and of the employee experience. And so I was a really good fit for Google. I loved the activities. I loved the campus. That all made me really happy. And while I was there, I had my regular job, which was running this behavioral science team. So helping teams um, understand how their users were making decisions and and thinking through the psychology of that. But then I also started this thing called Talks at Google Modern Romance, where I was single And dating apps had just come out and I was really interested in them. So I said, let me bring in some experts in the field and start talking to them about what's going on in dating and relationships. And I was able to get amazing people like Dan Savage, who's a famous sex columnist and podcaster, Esther Perel, who I'm sure is on your radar and is incredible. And um, Dossie Easton, who's one of the leaders in the non-monogamy movement. And so it was really interesting. I got to ask these questions that I had, but I could also see that this was gathering a following. Lots of people would come in person. The videos did well on YouTube. And so in the back of my mind, there was still this feeling of, I'm really, really interested in this topic, but I had been at Google for a while and actually using the word risk. I thought to myself, I consider myself more of a risk taker than somebody that just stays at the same company. So I switched to Airbnb And this was also, I would say, part of the heyday of Airbnb. Um, I was there when we launched Airbnb Experiences, which were so fun. The team was incredible. The most talented designers, such great people and pre-IPO, which, you know, was potentially lucrative. But while I was at Airbnb, the whole time I was there, I was like, I really think that I have this dream to do something in the space of dating and relationships, but I didn't know what form it would take. And then when... What year was this? In 2016, I was walking through Golden Gate Park, so our biggest park in San Francisco, and this freak accident happened where a huge eucalyptus branch fell on me, like, you know, the size of a room and like a few inches in either direction. And I would would have like been killed or seriously injured. And so after this happened, I definitely had a moment of reflection and I thought a lot about my life and what I wanted to do and turning 30 the next year. And what I ended up doing was I hosted this obituary party where I had my friends come over and I gave them each photos of themselves aged, like where they looked like 80 or 90 years old. I used some app to do that. And they had to look at this photo for five minutes and then write their obituary. And the point was that it was supposed to emphasize to them, what do you really want in life? Where do you want to end up? What's important to you? And people had really interesting answers. Like one woman talked about, wanting to be a foster parent. One guy talked about wanting to adopt. Other people talked about career switches or climbing Mount Everest, just really big things that by the end of their lives, they would hope to achieve. And for me, what came out was a lot of stuff around wanting to be in this field. And so about a year later, I started making this into reality. And then I took a sabbatical from Airbnb. And then after that sabbatical, I was like, yep, this is real. I feel like I can do it. And I quit that job. Wow. So it wasn't that you went from Airbnb to Hinge, just the job came up and you were like, yep, I'm going to apply. There was a a bit more of a journey to it. Oh yeah. I didn't work at Hinge for several years after, after leaving um, Airbnb. I did my own thing. Oh, I see. Yes. Okay. That, I mean, that obituary party, that's a risky kind of a game. Yeah. That's quite every- confronting. Yeah. Not everybody liked it. I mean, I have a friend who's very stubborn and he was just sort of like, this doesn't resonate with me. How, how on earth could I predict this? And I was like, it's not really about a prediction. It's more about like understanding your values. And actually the idea for the, 
for the party came from this experiment that a behavioral scientist out of UCLA ran, where he wanted people to invest more in their retirement funds. But the issue is that when people think about the future, they feel like their future self is different from their present self. They don't make the connection that it's them in the future. Mm -hmm. So when you show someone an aged photo of themselves, they understand this will be me in the future. And they're more likely to invest more money every month in their retirement account. And so I use that idea to say like, well, could I throw this party where people think about themselves in the future and start to plan towards it? So you did your own thing. Sorry, there's clearly a gap in my research here. So oh, sure. you did your own thing. You jumped from Airbnb, as it were, and you started, what were you doing exactly? Yeah. So, you know, I left and I was like, I have this vision. I feel like people need help in the field of dating and relationships. I think this stuff is hard. Um, I was no longer single at the time, but I had been single and on the apps long enough to know that it was challenging. And it just felt like there was a cultural shift happening and people needed guidance with it. So I was working with people in a coaching capacity one-on-one and I did a residency at TED. So, you know, TED Talks were really big at the time. And to me, it was the place where people were really going and doing great research and 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 giving these amazing talks. And so I did this residency in New York where basically I worked at the TED offices. I did my own research and then I gave a TED talk at the end. And that was fantastic. And I did a lot of research at the time on breakups. So really honing my perspective on what happens in a breakup, recovering from a breakup, all of that, which became part of my book. And when I posted on Facebook, hey, I'm going to New York. Can anyone help me with housing and explaining? I'm quitting my job to understand how behavioral science can impact dating. A woman that I knew from college who was an acquaintance reached out to me and said, hey, I'm a publisher at Simon & Schuster. I think this is a really good idea. Would you want to write a book? And I had always wanted to write a book, absolutely like one of my top three goals. And this person was lovely and I remembered her. And so I met with her. She helped me meet some agents. I really had I would say like the red carpet treatment, like, you know, it's very hard to get a book published. And that was a very privileged position just to have somebody be like, hey, do you want to write a book? And so um, that while I was in New York at TED, I worked on my book proposal at the end of that summer. I sold my book, sold my book proposal, and then I spent the next year and a half writing the book. So I was writing the book, doing research and coaching for a couple of years. Goodness me. So that really was a jump because- it was a jump into pretty much the unknown. You had a feeling and you definitely knew that there was something in this, but it was very, it was very unknown. Oh yeah. Yeah. If you just saw my form that it seemed like I left a job at Airbnb (laughs) to go to Hinge, that doesn't feel really risky. No, I basically was like, I have no form of what, I have no idea what form this will take. I don't know really where I'll make money besides coaching leaving Airbnb, you know, I left a lot of money on the table. It was a pre IPO company. And so really just believing in myself and saying like, Hey, there's something here. People need help. And I feel like I could be part of that. It sounds as well as though you, uh, your timing has been impeccable. It seems like you've been at companies at their heyday. And I think about this because when I started out in journalism, the, the thing I would hear most was, Oh, they've cut the budget. And I just missed that kind of when (laughs) so much money was thrown at the 10 day photo shoots in St. Lucia. Yeah. Um, I I missed that. (laughs) But it sounds like you've been very good at timing and placing yourself in these places as they're either on the rise or really enjoying their heyday. Yeah, I have to say in a self-deprecating way, maybe not the timing (laughs) where the people at those companies get rich, but certainly the timing where the companies are spending money on employees. Right. (laughs) And having fun as well, because those environments, when they are thriving, are it's where magic really happens. Oh, yeah. And I feel like my network from those times is amazing. Like some of my closest friends I met at Google, and it was just attracting the smartest, most passionate people coming out of college. It was an exciting place to be. And I just have such amazing friends from that time at Google. And that's also when I met my husband and then my time at Airbnb, all of those people helped me write my book, helped me design my book cover. There was just so, when you work at a place that has such incredible people, and I would put Hinge in that category too, you really have to step up your game because the people around you are so talented. Well, it's like, uh, it's the Tim Ferriss podcast, isn't it? Where the quote is... um... You're the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. Yeah, I believe it. 
So choose wisely. I can totally see that. Is there anything you miss about Airbnb? Because in the same way that I've had conversations recently about dating apps and Hinge has really come out on top, um, a few people have independently, it's funny, have said recently, does anyone still do Airbnb? I actually, it was one of my first posts on threads because a while ago it was just everywhere and I hadn't heard about it as much, obviously post-pandemic. Is there anything you missed from your time at Airbnb? Yeah. So just on the topic of Airbnbs, I still stay in them a lot because my husband's vegan and he's a really picky eater and he loves cooking. So when we travel and we stay in a hotel, it's just much harder for him to eat Mm. in a way that makes him feel good, especially if it's not like New York or a place where there's like a vegan restaurant all all over. So we still stay in a lot of Airbnbs because that's what's comfortable for him from an eating perspective. Um, We just stayed in a great Airbnb in Lake Tahoe recently. I also love Airbnb experiences. I don't know if you've ever done one, but it's like my preferred way to travel. It's like you go to a place, you look at all the experiences and then you're like, oh yeah, of course. I'd love to spend like three hours with the local doing a mezcal tour. And so that's, I'm really excited about, I'm still really into that. From the company perspective, yeah, I just do think working with all those incredible designers was really, really interesting for me. When I was at Google, the most powerful people in the room were the engineers they were the people that, you know, the product managers, the engineers, they made the decisions. It was a very engineering led company. And I was in marketing at the time. And, you know, you have some power, but not a lot. When I was at Airbnb, I'd be in the room and it was designers and the CEO and me. And the CEO comes from a design background and cares about that a lot. And so it was just cool to be at a company where design, which I don't have a background in, and I wouldn't say I have a skill for was so strong because you really understand what great design can do. I've had a lot of psychotherapists, um, therapists, um, psychiatrists on this podcast, and each of them will tell me that they're reluctant to say what they do when they meet new people at dinner parties because the dynamic, the air changes very quickly and people will either ask them about what they do or do you think I'm weird for this or, oh, you must think that what I just said five minutes ago was X, Y, or Z. As a behavioral scientist, do you have a similar thing with people? Do people assume that you see the matrix of personality and human interaction and that you somehow have um, a sixth sense or a vision that uh, maybe leaves them feeling a little bit exposed? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I would say it's more often that I introduce myself and talk about working in the field of dating relationships. And then that's the topic that people want to talk about. And so a common theme will be someone will say, can you help my sister? My sister's 35 and she hasn't been in a relationship in a long time. And what can I do to help her? And it really humanizes people because you you hear them talk with so much empathy and love about the people that they care about. And there often is someone in their lives who's struggling. And it's been such an interesting way for me to connect with people. So let's say I meet an entrepreneur and I want to network with him and I want to ask him for a call to learn some things about his life. And then I'm like, Hey, by the way, like happy to pay it forward. If there's anyone in your life who wants to talk to me about dating, they often have someone and that's, I'm giving them a gift. It's not like I'm paying them and it's not like I'm making a LinkedIn referral. It's like, I'm actually doing something that otherwise might be challenging for them because it's not like they have a million people they can call to talk to their sibling or their parent about dating advice. And so I really feel like it's a gift where people become really vulnerable with me and they talk about their own dating lives or somebody that they care about. And so that's a topic that I'm always happy to dive into. So they don't think that you're a a witch who just has a magic, a magic wand who can not at all. Make love everyone, <laughs> everyone loves talking about dating. Everybody likes talking about dating shows. It just feels like you know, if there's a dinner conversation and six people introduce their jobs and I introduce mine, it feels like there's a high percentage chance that we'll end up talking about dating for the rest of the night. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Let's talk about um, excuses because this is always a really telling, uh, a really telling question. I ask you if there is a recurring excuse you make for yourself or for others. And yours is really interesting because you said rather than making excuses, you have more issues with high expectations not just for you, but for others too. How does that show up? Um, And how do you, have you had to work on it? This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, I, I think it's probably one of the things I'm working on the most like in my life and therapy and day-to-day interactions is just, I think it's a blessing and a curse. It's like, I see what things can become. And I really do feel like I have a vision for, you know, this, this, this report could be the best report we've ever done. Or like this newsletter can change people's lives. I really have very high expectations and visions of what things can be, but then it's hard to get there. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of minutia and details and execution and revisions. And so I think for me, sometimes it's understanding what are the things that are worth being 100 out of 100 and what are the things where 80 out of 100 is good enough. So prioritization and differentiating between those things and then also understanding that I have higher expectations of people than they may have of themselves. And that could be a great thing where somebody loves working with me and is like, you push me and you make me better. Or people could be like, I'm not going to choose to spend my time in the way that you want me to choose to spend my time. And then we might butt heads. Yeah. Um, it's making me think about a time in a magazine when I thought, well, the whole objective, and we're getting a salary for this, is to make the best magazine possible every week. So why don't we do that? And it would drive me nuts. And I was a bit younger, Logan. So I've I've learned to temper this. But I would just think, if we can make it amazing, why don't we? Um but yeah, at some point you have to dial that back because you can't expect everybody to live by your expectation. Yeah. And it's interesting. I was talking to a friend about this and he was joking that we should high, have a high expectation society, like a, a little support group where we talk about this because for him, he is in the food industry and he loves food and service and experiences. And so when he goes to a restaurant, he often is disappointed because he's not just eating the food. He's thinking, what could this have been? How could the server have showed up in a different way? So it's mm-hmm. like, he's experiencing the entire food world as what it could have been and is often disappointed. And then I might feel that in my own way about certain things. If someone's listening to this and they've suddenly clocked, oh, actually the person who I think is giving me a hard time isn't giving me a hard time. They just think I can do better. Do you have, having been through that yourself, do you have any kind of keys of communication for how they could perhaps talk to that person? Yeah. I mean, it's a hard one because that almost implies that that person that has higher expectations of them is correct. And I don't know that that's always true. I don't know that I'm correct. It it, it does in some ways come down to prioritization. Like that person might feel like, well, my manager is disappointed that I don't spend more time on this report. But in the end, I don't think that that report has big impact. And what I think has big impact is this. And so they might go to their manager and say, I'd love to talk about how I'm spending my time and how I'm thinking about it. And does this align with your expectations, and then they can have a conversation and put on the table why they're making the decisions they do. Because oftentimes in in any topic, when you just make your motivation clear, the other people can understand, oh, that's why you're doing it. And they may agree or disagree or try to persuade you, but at least now you can have a conversation versus just assuming, oh, that person is doing the wrong thing because they haven't really considered the other option. Exactly. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. Let's switch gears and talk about the biggest challenge because this this is this is huge. And I believe this happened at the beginning of the pandemic where your husband was diagnosed with a very rare and life-threatening cancer and had to undergo some pretty intense treatment. Yeah, my husband and I were taking a walk last night and we were just thinking about that year slash two years of our lives and how it was like we lived on another planet and it feels so far away, which we're grateful that it feels far away. But essentially, you know, in March 2020, 
I started at Hinge, which was really big. The pandemic struck, at least in the United States, that's really the month that we started in lockdown that, you know, we didn't see our families for some of us for a year or more. And my husband had had this ankle pain and he had done all the things he was supposed to do. He went to physical therapy, he did the exercises and it wasn't getting better. And he got an MRI and they diagnosed him with this very rare form of bone cancer called osteosarcoma. And so it was really this just surreal time in our lives where I was like, what? Like the world is in a global lockdown and you have cancer. And it's not just having cancer in your early thirties, which is shocking, but also my husband is an extremely healthy person. I mentioned he's vegan. He works out every day. He meditates. He does cold plunges. He's really a person who prioritizes health much more than me, much more than people that I know. And so that just felt shocking. And so it was a really, really hard 2020 and 2021. So he had a below the knee leg amputation, which has really long recovery time. He had two other major surgeries and then he had many, many rounds of chemo. And so that was just during a time where I think everybody was struggling and it was so scary and people were just trying to figure out how to live. Um, we were also navigating this really challenging medical situation. When you look back on it, um, what do you think are your key takeaways in terms of what you learned about yourself that you can apply moving forward that might make life better? Yeah, I have always thought I was a strong person and good in a crisis. And I feel like that came true. Like I did not fall apart. I was able to really be there for my husband. I didn't go to the hospital every day, but I coordinated every single day for the long time he was in the hospital. There was somebody who visited. So that was just like a lot of coordination, leaning into our friends, asking for help. Um, and so, you know, then we moved to Houston for better treatment. And so just there was a lot of logistics. And I feel like I am the kind of person where in a crisis, I can sort of lean into the logistics. And it was a really, really, really hard year. Like, I don't think I felt emotionally well. I wasn't myself, but I definitely held it together. And so I have always felt like I have a pretty strong inner resilience and that definitely proved to be true. And I think when I think about moving forward, I'm like most things that come my way, I feel like I could handle because I've already been thrown such a challenging one that I have a lot of faith in myself. Um, I think it also was a great test of our relationship. Like we had been engaged and we were going to get married August, 2020. And then basically for a number of reasons, we were like, okay, let's get married before the treatment starts. So like in a week, our friends threw us a wedding, we got married and never once did it cross my mind, like not to marry this person. It just wasn't even a thought. And so I think the idea that we're so committed to each other, we got through this hard thing. My husband was incredibly strong, you know, is not only walking, but is climbing, working out every day, doing TRX, doing really hard exercises, has an amazing job. Like I think we also have a lot of shared respect for each other that has strengthened our relationship even more. I think sometimes when there is a period like that, where it is a an incredible challenge, where it's like life lives you for a bit because you have to uh, go with it. it. It can sometimes, when things go back to quote unquote normal, you can just kind of go and then just try and carry on as you did before. And it, it can be very easy not to take that break to kind of look after yourself and take a moment to say, wow, that was really tough. And maybe put something back in that's been taken out by it. Have you been able to, or do you have any strategies for that element of self-care of really nurturing yourself when you've been through something so draining and so intense? I don't know that I've done as much reflection as I need. And I don't think my husband has either. I think it was kind of like, this was a marathon. Let's get through it. And then once it was over, we tried to get back to normal life. I'm sure we would benefit from more processing. And we're lucky enough to have great friends and a great community. But I wouldn't say it's something where I have a super clear narrative on it. It's almost just like this freak thing that happened. I don't think I felt like myself for two years. Like just one example is I have a really good memory and that's something that I pride myself on. And it helps me in my work because when I'm coaching people, I can remember something they told me six months ago or a name. 
But if you asked me about something that happened in 2020, I'd be like, no, that never happened. And you'd be like, no, Logan, this happened. We went to this place. I'm going to show you a picture. And I just don't have a memory of it. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I don't think I've necessarily processed it all, nor have I done like all the self-care. It was just sort of like get through it and then Mm -hmm. move on. And maybe it'll come bite me at some point. But yeah, in that moment, it was just really about getting through it. Yeah. Talk to me about the community because you were you living on a commune at the time? Sure. Yeah. So it was, you know, we talked about the timeline, but, you know, March, April, 2020, that this starts happening. And then he gets a diagnosis and we were living alone, just normal couple in a apartment. And after my husband's treatment started, he was in the hospital for most of the time. And so I would just come home alone from the hospital to my house. Like, I think I talked about like sitting on the car, dirty carpet, eating pepperoni pizza, just like feeling sorry for myself. And our friends came over to visit one day and they were in our backyard and they just sort of saw how we were living. And they're like, no, this isn't good. Like this is not working. And they were worried about us. And so they lived in a commune in Oakland. So it's a intentional living community. It's people who say, Hey, let's get some land. Let's build some houses on it. Or it already has houses on it and have people living together who want to. And it's not about saving money. It's really about, they think that life is better lived with your friends and that you can actually have some really cool stuff if you pool your resources. So they were living together in Oakland, about 14 people. And we went there for dinner one night and they seemed to be having so much fun. And the place is called Radish and they were having Camp Radish and serving delicious food and smiling. And I was like, wow, these people are really having a good pandemic. And they very coincidentally and very luckily for us, and I now realize in retrospect how lucky it was, had a first floor apartment opening up. And so three weeks later we moved in and it was such a blessing for us because my husband was in the hospital a lot. Suddenly I could be surrounded by people. They would visit him in the hospital. They played different roles in our lives. They were cooking healthy food and doing activities. And so not only I think would it be fun in general, but especially during the pandemic where you couldn't really travel or see people, it was a really nice way to live. It's I've never spoken to anyone who's lived on a commune before. So it it it's and I was um listening to some uh, another interview you did where I think it was, you know, every night at 7:30 dinner's on the table. Yeah, yeah. I love and I actually really love the idea of that. I mean, I I went to I can think about school when you'd have if you stayed late, you would have tea and things like that. Well, dinner um, depends where you mm-hmm. are in the UK, how you cook, as you all know. But I, I found that to be a very, um, even just listening to you talk about it, I thought there's something very comforting about that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just for anyone's listening who is jumping to their own conclusions about it. So I would say is like, as I said, it's not something where people are there to, um, to what save are the, money. And it's what not the, like... Oh yeah, go ahead. So I was just going to say, what are the wrong conclusions that people tend to jump to when you say commune? Oh yeah. So I would say one of them is people feel like, oh, it must be like really cheap and like a frat house with 20 year old boys. It's like, no, these are people in their twenties, thirties, and forties who are choosing to come together. There's a lot of diversity, but people are also have great jobs and could afford to live by themselves or maybe even buy their own homes and are choosing to do this. So it really comes from a place of saying, this is how I want to live. This is what feels good to me. In terms of the pooled resources, there's a hot tub, there's a cold plunge, there's a sauna, there's a fire pit, there's a hammock, there's a ping pong table. It's just like things that nobody would probably have room for in their own backyard or want to buy. But when you have 14 and now it's even more like 20 people coming together, you can do that. And Mm. in between meetings, you can hang out with people. If you want to go for a walk with somebody, somebody's around. So it's really just about saying it's actually more traditional for people to live together in villages or small communities than it is for everybody to live alone in their own concrete box. And so it's not like radish or other Bay Area communes have invented this. It's like returning to some ancient wisdom that people have had for a long time. And plenty of people have understood that living in multi-generational communities or villages makes people happier. And so it's sort of just embracing that idea. It's very uh, interesting to me. And there's sort of a part of me that thinks I would like this to be the future because I mentioned it earlier, this cult of individualism. You only need to look at 
I was uh, walking home the other day and there were some kids walking back from school. None of them were interacting. They all had Mm -hmm. their heads basically at a right angle and they were looking at their phones. So they were alone in company. And as you get older, you just get, you are more adrift if you like. Do you think that that way of living is something that we should actually foster and try and encourage more for the future? Yeah. So, you know, after I have posted about this, I had this one video on Instagram that went viral talking about living there. And so now I'm getting a lot of questions from people about how do I do this? And so I direct them to the person that runs Radish. His name is Phil Levin, and he really is a visionary in this space. I would say I'm a follower. I love Phil. I enjoyed living at Radish. And Phil is a really close friend of mine, but Phil is really the one who's thinking about this as his career and has worked at a company called Cul-de-Sac that's building a space in Phoenix, Arizona that has no cars. And he's built now three versions of Radish. And so when he talks about it, he's like, it's actually probably too extreme for most people because it involves so much work to find the space, coordinate people. There's a lot of money that's, you know, with the rent and the repairs, it's actually very time consuming. So he's not sure that this is what will work for most people. But what he's promoting is this idea of how can you live by live near friends. And so he's starting um, some technology that will help people live closer together, because even just living five minutes from a friend, being able to get together without a lot of friction, he feels and the evidence shows would really make people much happier. Okay, we'll definitely have to put the link to that in the show notes. Let's switch gears and talk about the greatest success. I mentioned it in the introduction, but for you, it has been the impact you've had on people's dating lives and the emails that you get from people saying that they're either married or in a relationship, even that they have children. Um, have you have you ever been invited to a wedding? Are you a godmother to any of these people that you have uh, put together? I am a proud godmother, but not to anybody who (laughs) I have worked with, mostly to friends and family. I, you know, it's sort of surreal because when you write a book, it's not like you are directly talking to one person. You're writing a book at scale and then people are reading it. And the same with the work that we do at Hinge. It's like we're working really hard to help people fall in love, but it's not like I'm watching somebody every time that they open up Hinge and, and find a great match. So those emails are really the humanizing element that connects me to the impact of what I do. And I teach courses. I teach, I, you know, I, I help people in one-on-one coaching and that's probably the most direct version of this. So let's say I worked with a man five years ago and he was really struggling and he was coming out of a bad relationship and he had no hope. And then he'll send me a picture of his engagement. I just feel so happy for him because I saw where he started and I feel like I played a small role in helping him build up the foundation. And so when that happened recently, he was like, remember when you helped me build my profile and you put that picture of me that I thought was silly, but you helped, you said it helped show off my personality. He's like, that's the picture she really loved. And so of course he's creating a narrative, but it's really about helping people show the best sides of themselves understand how to tell their story, understand how to overcome some of the fears of a first date and really connect. And so I'm so proud that the work that I've done has helped people get out of bad relationships, get into good relationships, or even just understand that they're happy being single. So is there a a magic formula to creating the perfect profile? I don't know if there's a magic formula, but at Hinge, we definitely have done the research on this. I also have a course that some people have taken about learning how to do a great profile. And for me, it really comes down to telling your story. So when I look at people's profiles, I often feel like there's only one side of themselves. Like, okay, I get that you're really into anime. Most of your pictures are have anime and what you write is about anime. And that's great. Probably anime is one of the big things that you care about, but what are the other things? And so I work with them And it's almost like we reverse engineer the profile and we say, what are the three big things you want to get across? Maybe it's that super close with your family, you love anime, and you love to spend your weekends in nature. Let's make sure that your photos help tell that story, that your prompts tell that story. And that when I look at it, I really get a sense of who you are, how you spend your time and what you're looking for. And so profiles are very, very important. Most people That's how they're meeting on most people, the way that they are going to meet their future partner is online. And the way that that happens is through a profile. And so one of the biggest mistakes people make is not spending enough time on their profile. And also, I guess I keep seeing uh, people talking about the fact that men posing with sedated animals or big fish is just a big no-no. Would you agree? (laughs) 
Yeah. So what ends up happening is over the years, certain photos like that have become cliches. And at best you fade into the background. And at worst people are like, wow, I can't believe you didn't know not to do that. And then they reject you. So one of the things I like to people to do is sort of look at their profiles against a rubric. And one of the things that they're looking for is have I avoided these cliches? Interesting. Okay. Now, one of the other questions I ask all my guests is, do you have any regrets? And your answer was, I regret being a perfectionist, which has caused me to quit many things I am bad at. And my question to you, Logan, is, do you regret being a perfectionist or do you regret being a quitter? Hmm. I think that the perfectionist question comes back to what I talked about before, which is I have such high expectations of myself and others that I think sometimes I produce something of really high quality. Like, I think my book is great. It's really resonated. It's hard for a book to sell well. My book has sold. So it's like, I worked super hard on that book. I drove myself and my husband crazy. And I think it's excellent. In other times, it's like, why am I having so much trouble decorating my house? <laughs> because I just can't commit. I told you, I can't decide what bench to get. I can't decide what blinds to get. It's like, every decision becomes paralyzing because it's like, well, if we get a table for six, but we only have four chairs, or if we get a table for, for six, but then we, we make it down to four, then where do we put the extra two chairs? It's so, it's so ridiculous saying it out loud, but it's really that because you want the perfect outcome, you let perfect become the enemy of good. And so I think that I probably wouldn't choose to not be a perfectionist in that way because I think it's helped me achieve some things that I'm really proud of, but I would like to get better at prioritization and understanding like, yep, this is a book. This will be a seminal moment in your life. This is worth putting all your effort in and also being like, this is a bench. Its purpose is for you to sit and take your shoes off. It doesn't have to be the perfect bench. And so for me, it's really that process of learning and mindfulness and maturity and growing to say, what are the book problems and what are the bench problems? Book problems are the bench problems. The other thing I've spoken to many, many authors on this podcast. And one thing they all say is that no book is ever finished. Even once you've submitted it, you think about something that you would like to change, something that would evolve. And so the fact that you submitted yours and you are very comfortably saying, I know it's excellent. Um, is is really something because clearly <laughs> you must have, did you feel as though you were able to tie it up and you tied it up in a bow and what you delivered was like, this cannot be improved upon? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I, I would say I don't relate to that thought of the authors and I'm, I'm happy that I don't because how I actually feel about it is like most things in life are never done, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you have a website, you could always be switching out the photos or changing the font or improving the website. If you have a podcast. There's always a new podcast. It feels like most things in this really stressful way could always be made better and are never done. But for me, a book is done. Like I had a deadline. I met it. Then my editor gave feedback. Then I worked on that feedback and, you know, it was a multi-year process, but it was like at the end you hand in a book and it gets printed and this is the final result. And it lives in the world as this physical object. So I certainly wouldn't say, oh my gosh, there's nothing in the book that I would change. There are things in the book that I have adapted my feelings on. And I get to talk about that on podcasts or newsletters or in coaching. But I actually feel like it was mentally very healthy for me to have a physical object that was complete mm. that then I could move on from. So I feel like the finality of a book was actually really refreshing. But would there be another book in the making? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not working on another book, but there are a lot of things that I'm interested in. At Hinge, I've been doing a ton of research into Gen Z, and I'm just having so much fun with it. I think Gen Z is fascinating. I'm terrified by them and also inspired by them. What's happening in the Gen Z dating world is so interesting, and I don't know that I have answers or solutions for them, but I'm certainly really interested in where dating relationships are going. What's terrifying about Gen Z? One thing about Gen Z that's terrifying, I think, is this, that they're, I find them to be very avoidant. So, you know, they have a lot of language around transparency and asking for what they want. And they certainly are fierce negotiators at work. They're just sort of like, hey, I'm not looking for a career. This is a job. Pay me a lot. And I respect that. But I, when I dig into it with them from a dating perspective, there's a lot of conversations around well, I, I I didn't bring up that I liked the person. I just wanted to play it cool. Being earnest is uncool. Can't risk getting rejected. And so if you think about 
most people that get into relationships at some point, one person was like, Hey, I like you. Let's do this for real. Or, Hey, this doesn't feel good. I want things to change. There's you, it's just such a core part of being in relationship with anyone that the fact that there's a lot of avoidance around difficult conversations does worry me. I noticed this, not in the dating space, but just, um, I'm old school. I'm a 45 year old woman who, when I first started out, like you, your thing was manning the phones and it would be, I'd be terrified for the phone to ring because I don't know what was going to happen, but if I had to ever call anybody, I would write it out first and I would read it off as a script. And yet now no one puts phone numbers on their signatures. It's really hard to get hold of anyone. And when you do, I phoned up somebody the other day at their job and they were like, yeah, what? I was totally stunned that there was no (laughs) good afternoon name of company. My name is Blah. How can I help you? Which is what was drummed into me for years and years. And then I was talking to another friend who runs a business and she said, yeah, it's really hard to get these young kids to pick up the phone because they've never had to because they can send an email. Mm -hmm. But that to me seems like a, a huge piece of vital communication that people are missing out on. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, I think that they're set up for success. They talk about loneliness. They talk about mental health. They are on TikTok sharing vulnerable things. So in some ways, they can really bear their souls. But that's not the whole thing. It's not just confessionals. It's not just selfies and recording a video, putting it up and seeing who who responds to it. It's actually in a one-on-one scenario, can you express yourself to another person and take the inherent risks involved with that? Because actually, when I asked you to, to describe your greatest strengths, one of them was that you said you're a great listener and a great conversationalist. And I wondered if you could boil down into a nugget what what it is that allows you to be able to speak so easily with with anybody. Yeah, I mean, it, it, hearing you say it back to me, I'm like, oh, that's embarrassing that I said that. And maybe <laughs> people are listening and they're like, she's not that great of a conversationalist. But I do feel like that's sort of my my gift and what I spent a lot of time on earth doing and something that I've been complimented on in the past. And I think it just comes from being curious about people. I think that if you are genuinely curious about someone and Emma, this is literally your job and you know why you're good at it. But if you really want to know what makes somebody tick, what's exciting to them, what are they struggling with? What's really going on for them? That's a good conversation. A good conversation is really helping somebody open up and maybe you open up in the, in the, in the, in the conversation as well. Um, there's this idea of shift versus support responses. So, um, a shift response would be that you say to me, Oh, I'm about to go on my August holiday and I'm going to Portugal. And then I say, Oh, Portugal. I love Portugal. I went to Portugal in 2011. I've shifted it towards myself. I might think I'm being a good conversationalist because I'm connecting to your story, but I'm really just using it as an excuse to talk. A support response is helping you dig in and say, how did you choose Portugal? What does the August holiday mean to you? How did you spend this growing up? What are some of the ones you want to take in the future? And really helping you dive deeper into that topic. And so a lot of people are doing shift responses and think they're great conversationalists, but actually it's much more important to give the support responses. And another way of saying that is it's better to be interested than interesting. And what I find very fascinating as well is that obviously a lot of people will be fantastic conversationalists and they won't understand the science of it but obviously that's what you've studied so it's like you someone might just navigate life and think yeah I'm, I'm just very interested in people but they won't understand the shift the support side of it do you think when you started to study that did that open up the world to you yeah I feel like a lot of this stuff has helped me um I know Elanda Bataan probably like a big deal in the UK and I, I love School of Life and I was lucky enough to interview him for my book and go to his school of life conference in LA. And one of the ways that this really clicked for me was he had this experience where people would go on stage and he would show how when one person says something, it's like the conversation branches and you can either go in the deep direction or the shallow direction. And that every conversation has multiple branches and you're either ending up in the shallow end of the pool or the deep end of the pool. And so really being conscious of where the conversation is, where it could branch and what choice you're making. And that really influences how I help people and coach them on dates. So I had this female client who told me, you know, I really like her. She has an interesting job. I think she's so funny. I love our sessions together, but she told me that she just wasn't getting second dates and that she more or less was getting the feedback that 
she was like a little bit forgettable or people left the date and couldn't really remember what they talked about. There was just, and I, I found this so shocking. And so I, I have a good relationship with her and I was joking with her that she's like fruit on the bottom yogurt. If you have that in the UK. So it's like they dig the spoon in and they don't get all the way to the bottom and they just think she's vanilla. Mm. But if they were to dig down, they'd be like, wow, there's some delicious cherries and strawberries down here. And so my work with her is about getting that fruit to the top and helping her actually be more engaging, which is another way of saying more vulnerable. And so we really helped her figure out what was she not saying on these dates? Why was she being so safe? And it was like, for me, almost a little shocking to be like, oh, I have to break this down. But then I was like, no, there's there's value in this. And so helping her understand that when somebody is getting to know her, it's not just about sharing facts about her life. It's also about sharing experiences and feelings. And so it's not just, I live in California. My parents live in New York. It's, I live in California. My parents live in New York. I'm worried about them aging. I feel really removed from them. I it's hard to live far from your family, like going into that deeper experience of what it's like to be you, not just sharing facts about yourself. Do you hear people, do people say to you a lot of things like either I really hate small talk, I'm much better one-on-one or I much prefer kind of the cocktail party conversations because I would definitely say people tend to fall in one of two categories. Some people are great at small talk and other people find it really draining and they gravitate to the corner with the other person who loves a deep and meaningful. How, what does that mean about the person and how could they have a little bit more social interaction if they wanted to sort of find a space that's a bit more in the middle? Yeah. I mean, I think small talk is part of life, you know, making small talk when you go to the dentist or when you run into somebody like that's just sort of inevitable. So it's a good skill to have, but my preference would be for most conversations to not feel like small talk and for people to be able to mirror some vulnerability. And so if you run into someone and you say, Hey, how are you? Fine. How are you? Great. How's your mom? Blah, blah, blah. Like that's not interesting. Who cares? But if somebody says, how are you? And they're like, Oh, actually this month has been challenging. I, you know, was laid off from work or I haven't been feeling well, then it's a chance for that other person to say, oh, I can take my mask off too, because I can also be real. And I'm also having a hard time. And I think that's why if you look at media, so much of what resonates with people is not when somebody's being perfect or acting like their life is amazing. It's when they really get real and say, hey, this is what's actually going on for me. And so it's not Mm -hmm. always appropriate. Like, I don't think that you're going to tell your dental hygienist every problem that you have, but in situations where it is appropriate, and even sometimes on a date, talking to people about something you're really joyful about or something that you're nervous about, those conversations are just more enjoyable. Mm, And memorable. I feel really bad for that uh, client of yours who was told that she was forgettable. I don't want that for her. I know, and neither do I, but I... I loved her. She had a great personality and I wasn't like, oh no, they're discovering who you are. I was like, they're not discovering who you are. And we have to help you bring that out on a date. We, we have hurtled towards the end of our time together, but I want to uh, finish on something, which is one of my favorite questions, which is to ask my guests about a time when they were wrong. And I think for anyone who's been listening to this conversation, I think Logan kind of like nails life. You obviously are very thoughtful, um, but you, you fully put your hands up and admit that you were wrong. And you said that video chats weren't going to become a part of the way that we date. And yet it seems as though they, they have. Yeah. I mean, I, in the, you know, considering the depth of our conversation, that feels light, but yes, I would say that in a, it doesn't feel that important, but Um, You know, video chats were something that I thought were really transactional and people just screening each other in a job interview format. And then when the pandemic came along, they really were a lifeline where people were meeting that way. And it became an important part of dating and something where people didn't have to give up on dating. And I know people that are now married because during the pandemic, they met on Hinge, video chatted, met up in person, joined pods and, you know, got together. I'm trying to think of something Oh, with a little more gravitas to end on. Um, I would just say, yes, you know, I've been here. I talked about career successes. I talked about risks I've taken, but I'm definitely still figuring it out just like everybody else. And I have some happy days. I have some stress days. I'm probably working on too many things. I 
there's many, many, many areas of my life that I feel like I could improve on. And today was a slice into some of the successes. We could have another conversation about more of the failures, but I would just say, you know, behind everybody with a couple viral Instagrams or a successful newsletter and book is somebody that's questioning themselves all the time and just doing the best they can. That's a lovely note on which to end. Thank you so much. And thank you for um, putting How Not to Die alone into the world because honestly, you only have to go onto any book seller website and read the reviews and it's phenomenal the response that has. I mean, as you said, it's hard to get a book deal. It's hard to write a book, but to get a hit in the way that you have is just absolutely kind of um it's a unicorn situation so congratulations and thank you for coming on the podcast and obviously i'll link to you in the book in the show notes thank you so much emma great to be here and excited to connect with your audience thank you so much for listening to that episode of the emma gun show i do hope you enjoyed it i appreciate your time hugely if you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode you have to answer a couple of questions but we cannot wait to see you there come over and join the conversation thank you so much for listening i will see you on the next one Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.